Welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm Michal Stein. And I'm Lydia Abraha. This week on Pull Quotes, we try to wrap up some loose ends before we go on hiatus until January. We'll bring in three of our ROJ colleagues to share their year-in-review Pull Quotes. But before we get to that, there's a really big story that we should talk about. On Monday, November 26th, General Motors confirmed that its Oshawa plant will close in December of 2019. That means 2,973 people will have their jobs impacted, including 2,522 people who work at the plant itself. And it won't just be those jobs affected. Jeff Sikudny and Jake Edmiston wrote an article for the Financial Post on November 26th. A shame, a crime, a betrayal. After 100 years, Oshawa faces life without its golden ticket employer. They write, according to Unifor, for each direct auto job, there's an estimated seven spin-off jobs. If you do the math, a loss of 2,000 auto plant jobs could mean up to 14,000 jobs lost in the wider community. So this story doesn't fit neatly into one beat. It's not just business, it's not just labor, and it's not just politics. It's the intersection of all of those, but it's also personal stories of livelihoods lost and lives changed. We'll speak to Jeff Zakudny to break that down in just a minute. It's been kind of interesting to look at the reporting across the different newspapers. You look at the star and you get pieces like the one from Sean McAuliffe, who was a guest on Pull Quotes earlier this season, where he talks about the ripple effect into the wider community when something like this happens. In his November 27th column, Oshawa shutdown was a shock, but it wasn't a surprise, he writes. What struck me in comments from Oshawa residents this week is how familiar it all sounded. Shock, certainly, but not surprise. A plant closure is the big one everybody waits for in an industrial town. It's the earthquake, the wildfire, the flood. It has the catastrophic and helpless feeling of a natural disaster. And while it does not come with direct loss of life, the loss of a way of life is deeply traumatic. Also from the star, you have Sarah Moja Tehezadeh, their work and wealth reporter, writing about the grander implications for good jobs in the wake of this closure in her article, Why Impending Closure of GM's Oshawa Plant is a Wake-Up Call for Canadians, from November 27th. And then, of course, you have the piece in the Financial Post we mentioned earlier, and another more auto-industry-focused story by Emily Jackson on November 28th. North America is at peak car. What does that mean for Canada's remaining auto plants, she writes. Barry Cross, an operations professor at Queen's University's Smith School of Business, believes North America has reached peak car. Fewer young people are rushing to get their driver's license. Ride-sharing is more popular and self-driving technology is improving, he said. Households that previously needed two or three cars may cut back to one. There's a huge wake-up call associated with this right now, Cross said. So it seems this piece that starts out looking at just different kinds of cars with different plants across Ontario ends up asking a more existential question. What is the future of the auto industry and those who work in it? Before we bring in Jeff Zakudny, let's get some background information down. Mikhail, what can you tell us about the story? So first we need to go back to 2009, when the provincial, federal, and U.S. governments all bailed out GM to the tune of a $60 billion U.S. dollar loan after GM filed for bankruptcy protection. And after that, they announced that um, GM was going to bring back the Chevy Camaro and that that would be produced in Oshawa. So then we fast forward to September 2016, and Camaro production has been moved to Michigan. And then across the auto industry, production has moved to the southern U.S. states and Mexico. 
Unifor, which is the union for GM workers, negotiates a deal that ensures vehicle production in Oshawa, but GM doesn't commit to anything beyond 2019. Two years and some change later, we can see why some people seem to be expressing such a deep sense of betrayal after GM announced they were going to close the plant on Monday. Jeff Zakudny, reporter for the Financial Post and Oshawa native. Welcome to Pull Quotes. As of Sunday, what did you know about what was going to come out from GM? Yeah, well, I was just, I was sitting on my couch Sunday evening and I was just watching football and uh, then just stuff started breaking on Twitter. I think it was CTV Toronto that had the, had the first story saying that GM Oshawa Prime is going to close. And from there, I, I just sort of snapped to attention, both because I'm from Oshawa and because I realized that this is a, a, a huge story in general. And I started sending emails to uh, politicians in Oshawa uh, that, that I have some prior connection with. Uh, I had spoken to the mayor, uh, I guess he's the Yaukoi mayor, he's going to become the regional chair, and he had said that he wasn't sure what was going on too so it really caught everyone by surprise and then later uh, you know as everything went on like later uh unifor put out that statement saying that uh as of now it had been formed um there wasn't going to be any product allocated to the plant after 2019 which was a pretty stark thing put out there and then the next day gm kind of came in and confirmed that and said that yeah that there is nothing that's going to be no future products that are going to be allocated to the plant uh, after next year. So there have been a lot of auto plant closures in the last 10 years or so um, from GM, but also from other companies. And for, I, I don't know if this is maybe a blind spot for me, but it almost felt like this announcement seemed like it had a much bigger response. Um, do you think there's a way that this closure was different from any other? Well, this closure, uh, closure potentially looks like, uh, if they go through with it, it would be the end of auto manufacturing in Oshawa. Like to, to this point, uh, you know, GM has winnowed down production in Oshawa. At one point, there were more than 20,000 workers at, at its Oshawa plant, and now it's down to you know a fraction of that. So it, it's just been sort of drims and drams that the job's been going away. And so this one potentially stands to finally, once and for all, stamp out that manufacturing footprint. So I think that has really grabbed people's attention. Uh, and, you know, you, we were talking about this a bit earlier, but uh, the, the history of the Oshawa plant, like, you know, we're talking about more than a century old time. Like in Oshawa, you have, like, the name of the junior hockey team that plays in town is the Oshawa Generals, uh, right in the middle of, the, the city, there's this huge mansion called Parkwood, uh, which was the family estate of uh, the McLaughlin family, and they were the ones that helped build the McLaughlin Carriage Company and then the McLaughlin uh, Car Company, which was then bought by General Motors and rolled in, and now that all became General Motors Canada. And everywhere you go in Oshawa, there's signs and, and symbols of auto like the auto industry, like there's a, there's a hotel or there was a hotel that's right on the corner in, in the downtown. It's called uh, the Janosha Hotel. And, you know, that was a place where 
executives that were coming to town to, to, to talk the auto industry could stay. Uh, so it's, it's, I think it has a bigger impact both because of how dire a possibility it is and the fact that there is this really rich history uh, of the auto industry in Oshawa. It's kind of like Canada's motor city in the same way that Detroit is the U.S. It, it has that sort of uh, profile. It's, it's interesting. I, I think what you're saying kind of echoes what a lot of the um, reporting has been saying in the last week it, that almost feels like um, like a lamentation for for Oshawa and as you say like the end of an era the end of the auto industry in Oshawa um, but I thought that there was an interesting quote in your piece from Dennis Desrosiers who said um, Oshawa already has lost three quarters of its automotive uh, I guess, industry in the last two decades, uh, and it's growing and surviving. It has survived quite well without them, so there's no obituary required. Um, I I thought that was kind of an interesting snippet, the, the no obituary required. Uh, what do you think about that take? Well, what I, what I would think about it first is that, and what I should have, done, should have said at the, at the beginning of this, was that this is a story I did with my colleague Jake Edmondson, uh, we, you know, we, we teamed up on this one on Monday, and I, that was a quote that he got and that he did in the story. And, and you know, Jake's a, a fantastic reporter and, and someone I kind of look up to in our newsroom. And uh, that, that quote from Ben Sarosier, it, um, it, to me, it, it is sort of an indication of, of how people think about Oshawa now. Like, uh, elsewhere in the piece, like we talked to the mayor, and, and he and he was talking about how the city's diversified, which is a term you hear in business about, you know, not sort of having all your eggs in one basket. If you look at Oshawa now, uh, it, it is more than just uh, the manufacturing sector. There's uh, a big uh, a, or a growing university. There's a college. There's, I think, an, another university branch that is there. Uh, it's sandwiched in between two nuclear power plants. Uh, in Pickering and out in Bowmanville or Darlington, uh, which are which are big employers in the area, there's hospitals. Uh, there's and and I mean at this point, I should point out that you know the, 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 the suburbs all over the north end of the city have really popped up in you know, the last few decades, and it's really become a big uh, community. It's become much bigger than it used to be, and there's just there's, there's a, a lot more going on there right now. Um, it was. It, it, it there is uh, it, while that that manufacturing footprint has kind of come down. There's been other things that have come up. That doesn't really offset the impact of a plant like a General Motors plant going away. But I, I think what the quote, like the one you point out, is shows that uh, the impact of it going away might not be as severe as it would have been for the entire city. It's still very severe for the people that are being impacted by it, though. Mm-hmm. And um, so as someone who's kind of looking at this from from a business perspective, who's also from Oshawa, and um, what kind of stories do you think you're going to be looking at as Oshawa goes through this transition? Well, <clears throat> I... I Right now, it's kind of a, a watch to see what the governments are going to do 
if there are any levers that they can pull to try and convince the company to change its mind. Uh, I'm looking at, there's just a statement that Unifor put out today that is suggesting that GM kind of agreed to stick around uh, until 2020 at least to uh, you know keep that plant open until at least 2020 as part of that last contract they signed with it. So it looks like that's one thing we're going to be seeing is that is this actually like a, a done deal? Uh, mm-hmm. GM, so far the comments that we've heard uh, suggest that it is, but in you know they've put out statements kind of talking about how they plan on uh, keeping you know they made comments about their U.S. manufacturing footprint that uh, seem a lot more upbeat than the ones with the kind of sentiment that that's being felt in Canada, and at the same time too, like they do have you know more in Canada besides just the Oshawa plant. They have like a, a, an engineering facility that they're putting together in Markham, I believe. Uh, there's uh, the Ingersoll plant, um, you know, down in the western part of Ontario. Uh, they got a, a, a propulsion plant in, in St. Catharines. Like they, they do still have other uh, other plants and other uh, operations. And it sounds like, uh, I think I read something today, that how they're going to still keep the actual company headquarters for GM Canada in Oshawa. So, I mean, they're, they're sticking around. But, uh, yeah, that's... The thing that we're going to be, I think, most closely watching is the maneuvering that's going to take place now uh, to see if there is any way to keep the Oshawa plant open in any capacity. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jeff. Uh, It's been great chatting with you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. We are so excited to have some of our colleagues from the ROJ joining us today to break down some stories from the last few months in the special extended pull quote segment. We have Catherine Singh, the online managing editor. Hi. And Alexa Taylor, one of our copy editors. Hi, everyone. And Adam Chen, one of our social media editors. Hello. Okay, Catherine, what's your year in review pull quote? Um, So something interesting happened last week. Um, On November 19th, CBC tech columnist Jesse Hirsch was interviewed by Matt Galloway on Metro Morning. And in his talk with Galloway, Hirsch was discussing Facebook and the recent security breaches on the social media site. And this was based off a New York Times article that was kind of outlining these security breaches and Russian interference specifically on the site. And towards the end of the segment, Hirsch questioned why CBC, which Metro Morning is under, trusts Facebook and continues to be in business with Facebook, often posting their articles on the website or on the social media site. Um, So he kind of questioned why they're still in business with them and specifically why they continue to engage with Facebook, um, because CBC as a public broadcaster should kind of be in the interest of strengthening democracy. And I guess he felt that with these recent security breaches, Facebook really isn't um, in the same type of business. And so he also noted that when he's been on Metro Morning or CBC before and he's spoken disparagingly about Facebook, CBC has previously not really backed him up or supported him. Um, And so in response to this, so this was live on the air and CBC ended up not actually posting the interview 
on their online platform. And so 1236 initially reached out to CBC um, inquiring about this, and they um, issued a statement saying that um, the interview and Hirsch's comments didn't meet their journalistic standards and practices. And they also followed this up, CBC, with a post on their website kind of outlining the reason why they decided not to post the entire interview. And so that was kind of one part to the story. Um, But something that I thought was really interesting was a debate that it started on Twitter. Um, And that was due to Jesse Brown from Canada Land. He called out Matt Galloway, the host of Metro Morning, for not defending Hirsch um, to CBC. And this kind of started a debate of sorts between Brown and several other journalists, but um, specifically Robin Doolittle, who's at the Globe and Mail. Um, And it kind of spurred this debate on the merit of approaching management internally with issues or using social media or a public platform to kind of air your grievances, maybe with your employer or the um, publication that you're working for. Um, So my pull quote comes from this exchange, and it was in response to Robin Doolittle's tweet asking Brown if he'd prefer to have an employee at Canada Land approach him privately or blast him on social media, to which um, Brown replied, LOL, that's hilarious, because that's happened like six times, and I've always responded more quickly when they blasted me publicly. So I think there's a lot there, maybe on Brown's part. Um, But what it really made me think of was this idea of call-out culture, which I think has been really aided by the rise of social media and the necessity of journalists to be on social media and engaging with social media as part of their job. Um, And it made me think of the idea of who gets to call out and who gets to be called out. Um, And it also made me think immediately of Desmond Cole, Um, who himself was a columnist at the Toronto Star. So as a columnist, these journalists aren't necessarily beholden to the same standards um, or to the same rules, maybe, as a full-time employee. Um, And while Cole wasn't necessarily calling someone out per se, um, him leaving the Toronto Star kind of in the wake of or because of his engagement with activism seems like a very similar message to what CBC is saying with Hirsch, which is kind of you're valuable until you're not. And from the kind of exchanges on Twitter and the statement from CBC, it kind of feels like a don't bite the hand that feeds you um, type of exchange. Um, And there's a few things there. So there's the same conversation we had with Cole, which is that these journalists are paid for their opinion. um, And that's kind of until it goes against what works for these maybe legacy organizations um, on the business end. Um, And that kind of coincides with the fact that more than ever, we're having these conversations around transparency and reporting and from news organizations. And it's kind of compounded with social media and the expectation that journalists be real and be transparent on social media, kind of like Brown was. But then there's a fear of speaking out or being transparent or critical of somewhere where maybe you're employed or you're a contributor, um, especially because the industry is so precarious right now. Really, how transparent is that? And Alexa, what is your poll quote? So my poll quote comes from the September 24th CBC article, uh, radio ad claiming to debunk myths of residential schools draws criticism. So back in the fall, an advertisement about the myths of residential schools aired on multiple private radio stations throughout Saskatchewan. The ad was made by the Frontier Centre for Public Policy, which is a conservative Winnipeg-based think tank. Um, The ad talks about how there's little evidence that the abuse that was suffered by a grandparent at residential schools had any 
effect on, for example, the academic success of the generations that followed. So the ad was voiced by Roger Curry, who is a veteran prairie broadcaster who's worked for CBC, Sea Job out of Winnipeg, and Harvard Broadcasting throughout his career. Um, my pull quote comes from James Dashuk, who's an associate professor at the University of Regina. He refutes the ideas about residential schools that are put forward by the Frontier Center and calls the ad egregiously wrong. My pull quote is, There's so much overwhelming evidence, it's undeniable. The producers of that segment were knowingly turning their backs on the facts. So Golden West Radio operates stations in Swift Current, Humboldt, Moose Jaw, Estevan, Weyburn, and Rosetown Kindersley. The fact that they played this ad is seriously problematic, as it makes you wonder how much editorial control they have over what gets airtime. And it compromises their credibility, as these outlets do produce fact-based news. Racism is still a real issue in Canada and Saskatchewan, especially in rural areas, and a lot of people get their news from these stations. It's unethical that Golden West would disseminate information that's outright wrong. So, Adam, what's your pull quote? So the project I want to talk about uh, is the Born and Raised podcast run by HuffPost Canada. Um, I spent my summer working at HuffPost, and uh, one thing that I really admired was their initiative to uh, bring the stories of second-generation Canadians to the forefront of our media. Uh, as we know, demographics are changing, especially in Toronto, and um, being myself somebody who had uh, one parent who was born abroad, I realized the differences in the realities and the culture that we have versus um, <clears throat> what people who may have been here for several generations might have. Um, and one way that I think they did a great job of uh, really uh, saying something that resonated with me that other people might not understand was my pull quote. Um, and that was from Angeline Francis, who's one of the co-producers on the show, along with Aldonado. Uh, and she says, have you eaten yet? Is basically the immigrant version of saying hello. And that really connected to me because... That was the first thing I learned, not only in Chinese, but in the less spoken uh, language of Taiwanese, which my family also speaks. So saying, ni chu fan le or in Taiwanese saying, jia ba that's basically how you say hello, but it also just means, have you eaten rice yet? Um, so yeah, that's my pull quote, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, Adam. Thank you all for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> and now it's time for our final poll quote segment of 2018. Michal, what's your poll quote of this week? I feel like I've used Sean Craig's tweets before, but he does have really good tweets. So if you don't follow him yet, you should, at SDB Craig. Anyway, he tweeted out an image from Postmedia Summary Compensation Table from 2016, 2017, and 2018. And my pull quote is what he said about it. Postmedia paid CEO Paul Godfrey a combined $5 million in salary, awards, and compensation in fiscal 2018. President Andrew McLeod got $2.2 million. The company cut about 10% of its staff in the year. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more unprincipled group of executives. So I think this is really worth noting when we're talking about things like the GM plant closure, because we still don't know what's going to happen with the Liberal government's newspaper bailout. We spoke earlier about the fact that the government bailed GM out 10 years ago, and this week they've announced that they're closing the Oshawa plant. At the same time, here we are, waiting to see what happens with a newspaper bailout. And then you see these kind of numbers. 
When you think about how many reporters' and editors' salaries could be covered by that $5 million, meanwhile, those are the kinds of jobs that are getting cut, it's worth keeping in mind going forward. And one last thing that I have to mention before we finish for the year, so I'm sneaking in a second poll quote here. (laughs) Megan Fitzpatrick, a reporter for CBC News, has been trying to get an interview with Lisa Thompson, the Minister of Education, since August. And she's been tweeting about this, that she either doesn't get a response or gets told that Thompson is too busy that week. And so last week she tweeted that she was in a scrum with Thompson at Queen's Park and that she told her that she'd been trying to get an interview. Thompson said she'd love to sit down and that she should get in touch with her scheduler. Progress. Great. But then uh, Megan Fitzpatrick tweeted this out on November 28th. Remember the other day when at Lisa Thompson MPP said she would be happy to talk to me about her portfolio? Brackets. I've been asking since August. I asked her office today if we could talk next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, assuming she's in her riding Friday. Response below. And then uh, there's a screen grab of an email. Hi, Megan. The minister is not available for an interview next week. So those are my final pull quotes of 2018. Okay, Lydia, let's hear your final pull quote of 2018. It's not often that you see the Black Canadian experience represented in a mainstream news organization, but the BBC did it. They went to three different cities in Canada to profile 10 engaged Black community members, activists, and folks with unique ancestral stories. It's called Black in Canada, colon, 10 stories, and I highly recommend you give it a read. They touched on the slave migration, segregation, and immigration of Black people from all over the world, which captured the longevity of Blackness in Canada that's rarely talked about in Canadian media. This quote I'm about to read is from Yusra Kigali, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter Toronto. She says, I understand my Blackness through the lens of whiteness and white supremacy when I was in Hamilton. Black Canadian is an oxymoron to me. It's like opposing forces in my understanding. Because the project of Canada does not include blackness, it erases blackness from its cultural landscape, from its political landscape, from its social landscape. And that's my pull quote for 2018. I got to end it on a black note, you know. Of course. (laughs) I wouldn't expect anything else. (laughs) Thank you, Lydia. And that's our show. Pull Quotes is produced by Michelle Stein and by me, Lydia Abraha. Thanks to Jeff Zakudney for joining us this week. Thanks to Adam Chen, Catherine Singh, and Alexa Taylor for helping us take a look at the year in review. You'll hear more from this year's masthead in the new year. Pull Quotes is taking a break for the holidays, but we'll be back in January of 2019. Thanks to Angela Glover and Lizzie Hanna for technical help. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. If you learned something today, please help us spread the word by sharing our show on social media and leaving us a rating on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter at Liddy Abraha. And me at Michal Stein too. You can also visit rrj.ca for new stories every week. We'll see you in January when Pull Quotes returns. <laughs> <laughs>